Now, by chance, I happened upon a magazine that I have kept for decades. And one of the articles that's in this magazine is about a high school teacher who had to teach his students about the American Vietnam War. And he wrote to a number of congressmen, presidents, journalists, people who were involved in the Vietnam War, and he wanted to ask this question, what should we tell our children about Vietnam? And Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona answered this, the best thing I could tell your students is that when you decide to go to war, you must at the same instant decide to win it. It's just like having a fight with another fellow. If you go into it half-heartedly, you're going to get the daylights beat out of you. Now, in this chapter, we see people going into battle half-heartedly. They really don't know why they're fighting. They do not have a compelling reason. And they get the daylights beaten out of them. But Israel has compelling reasons to fight. And they win. So here we are fighting the good fight of faith. Do you know why you're fighting this good fight of faith? If you don't have a compelling reason to fight, you can't win. So that's what we're looking at this morning in 2 Samuel 10. I'm going to read it here. It says, It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent by the hand of his servants to, comf to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, to overthrow it? Therefore Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their garments in the middle at their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Now here, the Ammonites pick a stupid fight with David because they can. And David, all he wanted to do was continue a good relationship with this kingdom of Ammon, which is east of Jordan, of the river Jordan, so it's east of Israel. And evidently he had a good relationship with the king, the previous king Nahash. So he says, I'm just gonna send some ambassadors to say, wow, we're really sorry about that. You know, best wishes for the future. That's all he's thinking. 
But when his ambassadors arrive, Hanan's princes just look at this and they say, are you kidding? You know what David really wants to do? He wants to spy us out and overthrow our country. Are you going to just let this happen? But then these princes go on to do something that's totally offensive, outrageously offensive. They could have just escorted the ambassadors everywhere they went. Don't let them see anything they're not supposed to see. Stick with them. And then escort them right to the door and say, thank you, you have a nice life, see you later, and close the door. They could have done that, right? Uh-uh. They do things calculated to be a slap in the face. They shave off half their beard. That's gross. Cut off their garments to make a micro, micro, mini tunic. And it's like, there you are, in the court of the king. It's gross. This is not, you guys are spies. This is, hey, come and get me. Come on, right here. They're asking for it. So David, when he hears about it, he says, you guys, just take a leave of absence in Jericho. Grow your beards again so you can be seen in public and just wait there. And so look at this preparation for war in verse 6. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Meacha, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. Now when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Bethrehob, Ishtob, and Meacha were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled from before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. So Ammon hears that they have become repulsive to David. What do they do? They go out and hire 
33,000 mercenaries from the Syrians, the Arameans, different groups of them. But this is why Ammon is so cocky. They say, hey, we're just going to throw a bunch of money at this, hire a bunch of professional bullies, and steamroll Israel. We're going to beat them up. Now David sends Joab and his army when he hears about it. So this is a purely defensive move. And when the time comes for the confrontation, it does not look good. Joab shows up and finds the Ammonites are right on front of their city and there's 33,000 Syrians over here. There are two battlefronts. So Israel has to fight on two fronts at the same time and I would think they're most likely outnumbered. So look how Joab prepares for this battle. He makes sure that the men know why they are fighting. And it's all about relationships and supporting one another. So you notice in verse 9, he handpicks the best of Israel's men. These are the guys that have been in battle before. He knows that they are valiant and fearsome. Remember, David's mighty men are amazing warriors because they rely upon God to help them. And they've faced lopsided odds before. Those are the guys that Joab wants with him as he faces 33,000 Syrians. The rest of the army he puts under Abishai. And then he says, we are going to watch each other's backs. If those guys are too much for me, you help me. If those guys are too much for you, I'm going to help you. But we're not going to let each other down. We're going to stick together on this. And then, look what he says to the army. He says, let's be of good courage. Let's be strong for our people and the cities of our God. What's going to happen if we let these guys get by us? They're going to say, hey, Israel is easy pickings. Let's just pillage everything. And there go our wives and our daughters. There goes everything we have. This is why we're fighting. We cannot let these guys get past us. So this is not just about us. This is about everybody we love and we want to protect. And notice finally, he says, may the Lord do what is good in his sight. He's leaving it up to the Lord. He says, Lord, what do you want? We're going to trust in you. Does he want his people to be enslaved and mistreated? He says, we're going to look to him today to keep us. So look, Israel has many good reasons to get in that fight and win. Does everybody get that? Keep this stuff in mind. And they win this battle overwhelmingly. It's really striking, isn't it? 
That is, when Joab and his guys go up against 33,000 Syrians, all we know is they fled. It doesn't say how long they swung, you know, and they're going at it, but something happens, and it's like all the Syrians go, we're going to die. We're going, we have to get out of here. And you know, this is the promise of God in Leviticus 26. In verse 7, it says, You will chase your enemies, and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I think here is an instance of God fighting for Israel. They're chasing 33,000 guys. So all of a sudden, they go, nobody pays us enough to face these kind of guys. Because see, the Syrians' pitiful motive to fight is a paycheck. They don't seem to have any kind of relationship at all with Ammon. Do you notice that the Syrians, they're all by themselves. Verse 8, all these Syrians were by themselves in the field. There's none of them in the city and then some of them outside. There's no kind of buddy-buddy closeness. And it even looks like Ammon wants you professional bullies to stay out there. Don't mess up our city. And the Syrians go, oh, it's okay. Who do you want us to bloody up? So the Syrians and the Ammonites don't have, there's no reason for the Syrians to stick around. None of them says, oh, wow, if we don't stick around, Ammon's in trouble. They go, forget this, I'm out of here. I don't want to die. So they all desert the Ammonites. Forget the paycheck. I'd rather live. Well now, look at the Ammonites. Look at this pitiful reason to fight. They wanted to see David get taken down by the Arameans. They wanted to just sit back and smile smugly and watch David get beat up. They didn't think they were going to fight. You notice that they're lined up in front of their city? Where's that? Pardon me? In verse 8, the people of Ammon come out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. This is sort of the battle equivalent of sticking your big toe in the water to see if it's cold. What these guys are doing are minimizing their risk. If anything bad happens, they can just scoot right back in the city and we're safe. So are these guys looking to put their lives on the line and stick up for their high ideals? They haven't got any ideals other than we don't like David 
or we think he's stuck up or he's no good or something like that. Are they willing to die for that one? No. So as soon as they see their professional bullies run like girls, they go, okay, we're done here, back in the city. And Job's looking to say, hey, anybody want to fight? Anybody? Okay, I guess we're done, guys. Let's go home. So, Ammon talks tough, but they really don't have a reason to fight. So when it gets tough, they just go, I'm done. So, look what happens next. Here in verse 15. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river. This is the Euphrates. And they came to Helam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought with him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. So, the king of Syria, Hadadezer, decides to get involved personally here. And he gets even more Arameans, or Syrians, we use the term interchangeably, from beyond the Euphrates River. And I think this is the same account that is summarized in 2 Samuel chapter 8, where it talks about David fighting this very king. So, Hadadezer is evidently taking this defeat personally, and he says, you know what? We're going to wipe David out. We're not going to take this lying down. And he gets this commander, Shobach, involved. And, you know, it sounds like he's a big name. In the world of strategy and warfare, here comes Shobak. Boom, boom, boom. He knows what he's doing. He's a professional. This is just another campaign, he says to his men. Let's go out there and do this. Ooh, he's tough. David hears about this, gets all Israel together, and he goes right where they're organizing in a place called Helam, which is again east of the Jordan. It's almost directly east and across the Jordan from the Sea of Galilee. And again, his reason to fight is to keep Syria from overwhelming Israel. If Hadadezer thinks he's going to step on David. He also thinks he's going to take everything in Israel. Now, 
David is devastating, don't you think? Doesn't matter how many guys are out there. And he goes and he kills 700 charioteers. You know, chariots are like tanks. And, you know, if you have plenty of tanks, you're going to win, right? Except if God is fighting for Israel. And David takes out 700 of those things. I wonder how many more they had. And he kills 40,000 horsemen. This is devastating. Even the commander, the big name, Shobak, he gets hit and he dies. So much for all that strategy. So the result is, in verse 19, all of these kings who are servants to Hadadezer, they are vassal kings. They are lesser kings of territory, all dependent on Hadadezer and responsible to him. They say, you know, we're going to make peace with Israel now. We, we don't want to face these guys. We have no compelling reason to fight and die. So they submit. They actually become slaves of Israel. They'd rather be live slaves than fight for their freedom and their statehood and die. They don't have any real reason to fight and lay their lives on the line. Does everybody get this? So what we get from this is that if you do not have a compelling reason to fight, you can't win. And you say, well, I haven't faced any Syrians in I don't know how long, so I must be okay here. And we, do, we don't use swords in London. It's against the law. You can't even have a knife. But then you got to realize, all of us believers, every one of us who's received Jesus, we get born again into a fight. Have you experienced that? And Paul in Ephesians 6 says, this is not a fight with flesh and blood. People are not the enemy. But we face spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And this is not a cliche or an excuse. There is such a thing as the evil day that Paul talks about where the attack comes in like flaming arrows. And you don't know where they're coming in, but it looks like all of a sudden hell breaks loose. Have you experienced a day like that? And it's almost like, hey, everything's going great. All of a sudden, Pearl Harbor. What? Just when you think everything is going great, no problem, pow. Sneak attack. And then you think, you know, I fell for it again. And what's the idea of the spiritual attack? Paul says that our focus is to stand, is to hold our ground. 
he tells Timothy, lay hold on eternal life indeed. That's what we're fighting for. If we get knocked off our, our stance, we're going to get run over. So the idea is stay standing. And then help somebody else to get up and standing without getting pulled down yourself. We want to help everybody to stand and to lay hold on eternal life indeed. That's the battle. Are you aware that you're in this battle? So you've got to win this fight. You have to win this fight. The alternative is that you don't win. And there are people who evidently don't have a compelling reason to win this fight. And that's kind of upsetting, isn't it? It's weird. It's like before the lockdown, people were coming to church. And then after the lockdown, people aren't coming to church. You think, now what's that? I've been, you know, out in the parks, playing my guitar, meeting people, and I'll run into people who say, yeah, yeah, I was going to church, you know, all that stuff for the lockdown, and then kind of don't have the mo. And I've invited them, and they say, yeah, I still haven't seen them. Okay, so what are you doing out there? How are you doing against the spiritual attack? Are you laying hold on eternal life indeed? Or are you just sort of settling for a nice life and I'm glad I'm alive? Kind of like the Aramean kings. They lose their liberty. They're servants of Israel now. They're not their own boss, but at least they're alive and they don't have to face anything nasty like war. And I wonder if some people don't kind of make a deal with the devil and say, you know what? I'm backing off on following Jesus. Lay off of me. And that'll happen. You don't have to have a fight. All you got to do is give up. And you'll find magically there is no more fight. But then are you going to inherit are you going to stand? So this is an interesting thing. You have to know why you're fighting, what you're fighting for. Remember, this is not flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. But it doesn't mean that, oh, well, you know, it's not real. This is just as real, just as hard, just as bloody as any fight out there right now. At least I have found it that way. I got a list of reasons here why we keep standing, why we don't lose hope, and they're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to open up your Bible and read along with me. And I could have picked any number of places in the New Testament. I just liked 
the way this lined up. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now this is our hope. This is our confident expectation. This is the promise that God made to us that when Jesus is revealed in glory, we would be revealed with him in glory and our bodies will be transformed to be eternal and incorruptible, immortal. This is the resurrection from the dead. This is where we're headed. Now, in Romans 8, Paul says, in hope we have been saved. This is the hope. Eternal life, eternal glorious body. And it's far above what we live in now, which is Paul describing as a tent. Skins stretched over poles that sometimes gets old and weary and it leaks and it's temporary. And he says, we have a building. Don't think your house at home. Think of something like the shard. Something really, really cool. But see, this is our hope. This is why we're existing here because this isn't it. And we're looking forward to the future that God promised. And Paul says hope that is seen is not hope. Because why do you also hope for what you already see? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And so this is our hope. We're supposed to say, hey, I'm having a bad day today, but I am one day closer to immortality and glory and eternal life indeed. This is my hope. Imagine if you faced every day thinking about that. What would it do to your outlook? How would it change the way you went to work or school or just face life. I have a hope. This is not a wish. This is an expectation because God promised and he can't lie. So this is going to happen. Do you have that in the very front of your mind? That's why you're existing right now. 
But then look at this, verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Now, that hope is coming in the future. But even now, God gives certain things so that we will make it. And Paul here points to the Holy Spirit, the presence of God dwelling within us. Now, the Holy Spirit, God himself, encourages us. He enables us. He brings to mind the things that Jesus taught. He even pours out the love of God within our hearts. So, are you aware that the Holy Spirit lives in you and is there for you to rely upon and say, hey, the Syrians are too much for me. Can you help? And he will. Verse 6. So we're always confident, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We're confident. Yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I trust are well known in your consciences. So look at this. This is part of our existence on the planet is realizing that we're going to stand before God in judgment. You say, well, wait a minute. That's kind of terrifying. That's awesome. Is that supposed to be some kind of a whip or a goad or a pressure or a fear? I mean, Paul even calls it the terror of the Lord. Well, let's think about this for a second. We are going to stand before Jesus as he judges our life. Not, are we going to heaven or are we going to hell? Because the Bible says that when you trust in Jesus, you have passed from judgment. You have passed from death into life. This is about the kind of reward that you will receive for the things that you have done as a believer. You say, huh, wow, that's kind of awesome too. That's kind of scary. What have I done? You think, well, what if I show up there and he decides to beat me up because I didn't do what I was supposed to do? Well, there you go. You get to think about that now. How do you want to stand before Jesus? You know, the Apostle John says in 1 John, he says, abide in him, little children, so that we won't draw back in shame at his appearing. But we'll have confidence in his appearing. See, we can have 
confidence when we stand before Jesus because we take this seriously. Nobody in the world takes the judgment of God seriously. They don't think about it. I don't care. Oh, you will care. You will care greatly when that's coming up. And you say, I got to get out of here. I got to get away. But there's no way to get away. You can't move. And now you have to face God. Well, we get a choice because we're thinking about it right now. How do I want to stand before God? You know what that does for our lives? It makes this idea of being pleasing to God a high priority. It becomes a great priority in our lives to say, whatever I do, I want to please God. I want to think about that time and not draw back in shame. I want to stand there in confidence. So, this is one of the reasons why we're alive right now. To deal with this. To address this and say, I need compelling reasons to follow Jesus. Here's one of them. I am going to stand before God and give an account of my life. How did I do as a pastor? Did I do everything that I could have done? Oh, you don't know how that makes me pray, God, do whatever it takes now. Wreck me now. Make me a man after your own heart. See? That changes the way I live. But, here's another one. Look in verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Now this, I think, is the compelling reason to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to make this the highest priority of your life. The love of Christ. Do you know the love of Christ? And that, this is the thing. Has it come to your heart and gripped you that, my goodness, Jesus loves me. And we throw around that word very lightly. But what is it when you realize that Jesus loves you? Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Can you imagine? Jesus loves me. No, no, he knows me personally and he cares about me, and he loves me, and I know he loves me because he died for me. Now, how do I live knowing that? What's the response of my life? The answer is, here I am. You got me. <laughs> Nobody else loves me like that. 
I don't even love me like that. So the only response is to say, here I am. Anything you want, you can have it. And then, what does the Lord want? How can I show my love for him? Now, my love for him, don't get me wrong, it's about this much. Not drawn to scale. It's pitiful. But there is some there. And so I say, okay, it's not much, but it's all I got. Here I am. And then, what does he want me to do? That is my priority. Love my wife. Love your husband. Love your parents. Love the people you work with. Love everybody. It's a whole mindset. Do you know that if you give a cup of cold water to a kid in the name of Jesus, you're not going to lose your reward? going to be okay. So look around for people to love and you're going to make it. How can you love them? Because Jesus loved me and I'm not really worthy of love. So I can love you, man, because he's in me. Now, David and Israel fought and won because they knew what they were fighting for. And all those people wanting to pick fights really didn't have a reason to fight. That's why they lost. So you know, we are going to know our convictions and hold on to them. And then we're going to fight to win. Does everybody get that? Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have really revealed to us reasons to lay hold of Jesus. And you know that we're insufficient. And at times, Lord, we have really not watched, we have not fought well. And we're so glad that one battle is not the war. But you speak to us and you encourage us and you say, okay, get up. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to keep resisting spiritual forces of wickedness We're not going to settle back and make compromises in order to have a nice temporary life. But instead, Lord, we pray that you would make us ready for eternity. We commit ourselves to you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.